Our second reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark. I will be reading in chapter 13, verses 24 uh, through 37. Uh, in this passage, uh, we're actually picking up a conversation midway, uh, but this is Jesus speaking to four of his disciples in a private conversation. Okay, they've asked him a question, and they've talked to him offline, and this is the private conversation, and we're picking it up about halfway through the discussion. Jesus says, But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. For the fig tree learns, for the fig tree learns its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaf, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Eschatology is uh, the branch of theology that deals with the end of history. In the biblical view of things, there is a beginning and a middle and an end to history. In Genesis, the Bible talks about the creation of the universe, about the beginning of history. In the Gospels, the Bible talks about the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's the middle of human history. And the end of history is described in many places in Scripture, but most fully in the book of Revelation. The Revelation of John, the last book in the Bible, is the most eschatological book in the Bible. But our reading this morning from the Gospel of Mark, which is an extended quotation 
from a private conversation that Jesus had with four disciples is also extremely eschatological. Jesus is talking about the end of human history, and we should listen. This is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent is the four-week season of anticipation and preparation for the coming of Christmas. During Advent, I preach from the lectionary text, which is not my habit during the rest of the year. The lectionary is the traditional calendar of readings that goes through most of the Bible in about three years. The Roman Catholic Church uses the lectionary. This morning, every Roman Catholic Church around the world will be reading the same scripture lessons that we read here this morning, which is kind of cool. During Advent, the lectionary readings focus on two things. First, there are Old Testament and New Testament passages that look forward to the coming of the Messiah. Our Old Testament passage from Isaiah that we read this morning is a prayer that God would send a Savior to his people. We, of course, know that that Savior is Jesus. He is the answer to the prayer. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And secondly, during Advent, there will also be New Testament passages read that look forward to the second coming of the Messiah. Jesus promised that he would come back to earth. And in our New Testament passage this morning from the Gospel of Mark, Jesus talks about his second coming. Our passage begins... But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heaven will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in, cloud with great, in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, there are two important events mentioned in this passage. First is the tribulation, a time of great suffering on the earth. And the second is what some people call the rapture, that moment when Christ appears in the clouds and all of the elect, all of the Christians are gathered up together to be with Christ, the Apostle Paul describes the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He writes, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. If you haven't heard about the rapture, that's fine, because the word does not actually appear in the Bible. It is a word that started to be used in the 1830s by an English preacher named John Nelson Darby, who was part of a group known as the Plymouth Brethren. Darby used this term rapture to describe this event when Christ comes back in clouds of glory and all the saints, both dead and living, are caught up 
to meet him in the air. That's the name he used for it, and the name stuck, even though it doesn't appear in the Bible. I mention all of this because Darby's teachings have been very influential among evangelical Christians. All of the left-behind novels written by Tim LaHaye are based on the eschatological theories of John Nelson Darby. Churches like Calvary Chapel teach a system of eschatology that owes much to Darby. My father and mother graduated from the Philadelphia College of Bible, which is now called Cairn University, and that school taught Darby's system. That system has come to be known as dispensationalism, and it has had tremendous influence in the past 150 years, particularly in conservative American churches, like this one. One of the key features of dispensational eschatology is that the rapture, which is sometimes called the secret rapture, happens before the tribulation, which is a very comforting thought. Terrible stuff will happen during the tribulation, but we Christians will miss it because we will be off in heaven with Jesus, according to Darby, according to dispensational eschatology. But it seems that Jesus, here in Mark chapter 13, is teaching the exact opposite. It seems that Jesus is saying that there will be a tribulation, and then Christ will return in clouds of glory and gather up his church. In other words, that the church will go through the tribulation, which is why Jesus is warning his disciples. This contrast between the dispensational view and what Jesus seems to be teaching here in Mark sent me back to my books to try to figure this out. So I read the notes in, of C.I. Schofield, um, who was the leading dispensational teacher in the 20th century. Our pew Bibles here at Huntington Valley Presbyterian Church uh, at some point were Schofield Bibles. Um, and I also then uh, took a look at uh, the notes in the, uh, of Charles Ryrie uh, in the Ryrie Bible. He's the leading dispensational uh, teacher in the, in the 21st century. Okay? And, and I had to go back to this. I mean, I have, I have to tell you, I was raised in a dispensational environment, so I sort of had a sense of it, the way that you know things, like the way you know how to get around your own neighborhood without looking at a map. But I really had to read the notes to figure out um, how they interpreted this passage in a way that, to me, didn't seem obvious. What I discovered is that the dispensationalists have a reading of verses 26 and 27 of the chapter that we just read that is actually very unusual in the history of the church and, to my mind at least, is not supported by the text or the context. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles or if you're there in your, in your bulletins, you can take a look at the passage with me in verses 26 and 27. Here's what we read. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Of course, Son of Man is, is the name that Jesus uses for himself. They will see me. 
coming in great in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now, to my eyes and to my ears, that sounds like a description of the second coming of Jesus and the rapture of the church. But according to Schofield and Ryrie, the elect here in this passage does not refer to the church. Schofield and Ryrie believe that the church has already been removed from the earth before the tribulation that Jesus describes here. And so Schofield and Ryrie conclude that the elect here are Jews who have been converted during the tribulation. Now that idea that the elect are not the church but are Jews converted during the tribulation, that idea has to be imported into this chapter because Jesus certainly doesn't say it there. And we don't have time to talk about all of this this morning, but Schofield and Ryrie come to this conclusion as the result of a very elaborated system of interpretation, and that system does stand in contrast to how the church has traditionally understood these passages. It is a new interpretation. Now, I want to be clear about something because uh, in our congregation we have dispensationalists and we have those who are not dispensationalists. And our church has gone through dispensational periods and uh, other periods which are less dispensational. Born again, heaven-bound Christians do not agree about everything. Pick your favorite theologian, pick your favorite pastor. They are right about a whole lot of things, but there will be some other things that they get wrong, which is why we keep going back to the Bible. Among Christians like us, and I would describe us as conservative, Bible-believing Protestants, among Christians like us, there are two main views about the end times. Uh, the, one, the one is dispensationalism, which arose in the 1830s with the Plymouth Brethren, and which we find represented in books like the Left Behind novels and in Hal Lindsey's 1970 bestseller, The Late Great Planet Earth. The other view is, is typically called covenantal. This view is older, but they don't have any bestsellers. <laughs> It's just true. The difference between the dispensational and the covenantal eschatology actually is very large, and it has been controversial uh, over uh, the last hundred years. And I think uh, part of the fact that it's controversial has led to some people avoiding uh, the conversation. While dispensationalists have done a very good job of promoting uh, their view through uh, prophecy conferences beginning in the 19th century and uh, best-selling books in the 20th and the 21st century, the covenantal theologians have largely been quiet about eschatology. Uh, and it may be time for Bible-believing covenantal pastors to begin to talk about this more. And so... Beginning in January 2024, Pastor Bruno and I will be preaching through 
the book of Revelation. We're going to be preaching on the same schedule, so it'll be the same sermon uh, in the morning service, uh, in the early service, and in the, in the late service. The book of Revelation was written during a time of terrible suffering in the church, and that book was a tremendous comfort to that church. Because in that book, Jesus wins every battle. And the church, though it suffers, is protected and is victorious. It's a sad book for anybody who's rooting for Satan. But for us, it's just one victory after the other. So in what time remains this morning, I want to offer a simple covenantal exposition of Mark 13, and then offer three quick observations about what this chapter means for us as followers of Christ, as people who pray each day, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Our passage begins, the passage that we read this morning began at verse 24, but the first 23 verses of this chapter are the setup to the phrase, in those days. Back in Verse 2, Jesus is in the temple uh, in Jerusalem with his disciples and he makes the observation uh, that the temple is going to be destroyed. Then a little later, Peter and James and John and Andrew, they take Jesus aside and they say, when's this going to happen? And what will be the signs leading up to it? And then Jesus answers their question about the time and about the signs by saying, See to it that nobody leads you astray, and be on your guard. Jesus' primary concern in his teaching here in Mark 13 is that his disciples, and those who would become followers of Jesus through his disciples, that they are not tricked into following false prophets. And then Jesus offers a list of things that the disciples and that the other Christians are going to experience. Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars. He talks about earthquakes and famines. Jesus says, you will be delivered over to religious councils. You will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Jesus warns that brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And he says that you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus is telling the disciples also about something called the abomination of desolation. And when that happens, that's something that happens in the temple in Jerusalem. And when that happens, Jesus says it's time to run. Time to run for the hills. He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains at that time. Bad times. So bad, in fact, that the only thing to do is to run away. Jesus says, in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. So, the worst tribulation, the worst time of suffering in the history of the world, according to Jesus, and Christians will be part of it. That's why he's warning them. 
That's why he's warning the disciples. If the disciples or the people who would become Christians because of the disciples would never face the tribulation, why bother warning them about it? Jesus gives the warning so that when it comes they won't be surprised, so that when it comes they will be prepared, so that when it comes they will remain faithful and unwavering. In verse 19 and verse 20, Jesus says, If the Lord had not cut short the days of the tribulation, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, that's the church, he shortened the days. Christians will suffer through the tribulation, but God cuts it short for their sake. And all through it, Jesus' primary concern is that the Christians are not deceived by false prophets. Jesus doesn't seem to be terribly concerned about the suffering. What his concern is, is that in this time of suffering, they might get distracted and pulled away. Jesus writes, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. One of the more famous uh, dispensational uh, preachers of our time uh, was Harold Camping. Some of you remember him. I've got an autographed book by him, by the way, in my collection, with my saint cards as well. Okay. Harold Camping, here's a postcard from him. Christ returns May 21st, 2011. <laughs> what does that tell you? By definition, a prophet who prophesies something that doesn't come true is a false prophet. Harold Camping, who is a dispensationalist, was a false prophet. Okay, I, just, I just want to be crystal clear about that. All right? Jesus warned the disciples, and he warned the church about these things, because the church was going to experience them. If the church was not going to experience false Christs, or false prophets during this time of tribulation because it was off in heaven at that time, if that was what the church was going to experience, then there would be no reason for Jesus to offer these warnings. Okay. Jesus is concerned that during tough times that the church gets distracted by false teachers. If we're not going to face tough times... And not face false teachers, Jesus would not have bothered to warn us. That's a covenantal and not a dispensational reading of Mark 13. Okay? Uh, next year we're going to walk through this uh, in, in a much more formal way. Um, um, and I, and, I, and I, I just want to reflect uh, one, one more thing about this. One of the reasons that uh, dispensationalism is so important in the evangelical and conservative church is that dispensationalists take the Bible seriously. Okay? That's, that's where the alliance was formed. All right? And so I respect them for that. And I was raised amongst that. I think, however, uh, their scheme uh, creates some other problems. And we'll talk about that more fully 
2024. All right, uh, where am I going? How about here? What's that? Thank you. Three quick takeaways. All right, let's cut to the chase. Number one, seeing Jesus again is going to be amazing. We are getting ready to celebrate Christmas, the first coming of the Son of God, but we look forward to the second coming. And while his first coming was amazing, while his first coming was marked by signs in the heavens that wise men from far away could see, while his first coming was announced by angels who appeared to shepherds in a field, his second coming will be so blindingly bright that the sun and the moon and the stars will be dimmed by comparison. His second coming will be so glorious that there will be an army of angels who travel out to every spot on the earth to gather up all of the saints. Listen again to the words of Jesus. But after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds. In his first advent, Jesus came quietly and in humility. His divinity was hidden in human flesh. But at his second advent, the full glory and the full power of Jesus will be displayed for the whole creation to see. He will outshine the sun and the moon and the stars, and he will gather up every single person that he bought with his own shed blood. Number two, there will be suffering before we see Jesus again. Jesus started this whole discussion by saying that the temple would be destroyed. That temple was the holiest and the strongest building in the holiest and the strongest city in Israel. It was the symbol of the nation. It was the symbol of their religion. And not even one stone was going to be left on top of the others. And then there would be wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. And there would be persecution by officials. And family members will betray family members. And there will be something called the abomination of desolation. Things will be so bad that the time will come to run for the hills. And Jesus says to his disciples, and through them he says to the church, You will be hated for my name's sake. That's a lot of suffering. But what does Jesus say in response to to that suffering. He says, don't be anxious. He says, don't be led astray. He says, be on guard. He says, stay awake. Let me say something very quick about suffering in the Christian life. In this life, there will be suffering. There are evil people who do evil things. There are bad systems and power structures that victimize the poor and the weak. There is disease. There is death. This week, Pastor Bruno was called to meet with a family at Children's Hospital. A child, still in elementary school, had suffered a brain aneurysm. Family, praying for a miracle. The friends, praying for a miracle that this child's life would be spared. The child died. 
Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, you will suffer in this life. And if Jesus doesn't come first, one day you will die. Whether you're 8 or 80 or 108, we all die. And no amount of faith and no amount of prayer will keep you alive much past 120 years. Okay? That's just how it is. We live in a fallen world. The Bible doesn't promise us a life without suffering. What the Bible promises us, if we are in Christ, that when we suffer, we're going to be able to endure. That anything that we suffer is going to be for our good. And so for Christians, suffering is without bitterness. For Christians, there is suffering but no hopelessness. And in part, this has to do with the fact that we know that this life is not the whole story. There's also eternity to look forward. And if we are united to Christ in faith, then our eternity is going to be entirely without any suffering. There will be unending glory and pleasure. Yes, heaven is going to be very pleasant. And when we're in the presence of Christ, there will be no sickness, there will be no death, and there will be no more tears. Number three. While we are waiting for Jesus to come, we need to be faithful and vigilant in our callings. Jesus said, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. More than once, the disciples asked Jesus about when he would return. And he always told them the same thing. Be ready as if it's going to be today. What if this afternoon were the appointed hour for the return of Christ? Well, we would make sure that we're doing the right thing this morning. Okay? The things that are most important. The time to get right with God is always now. Because we don't know when Jesus will return. Or we don't know when we will be unexpectedly struck down with an aneurysm. We have no guarantees about tomorrow. And so we always need to get right with God today. That's Jesus' message. If you have not yet come to Christ in faith and in repentance to be adopted as a son or a daughter of God, then let's do it today. You can do that today because you may not have tomorrow. If you already are a child of God, secure in your faith, today is the day for you to pursue holiness. You've been called to live a holy life. Don't think that you're going to have time to straighten out your life next week. The time to start living a holy life is now, this afternoon. And all the while, let's keep praying. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we love you. We adore you. Uh, we thank you uh, for these words that came right out of Jesus' mouth. And we pray that we would understand them and uh, allow them to shape uh, our hearts and minds as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.